Peace girl, peace The English translation of this Cree prayer song by Carmel Crowchild. All things holy under the sun bless me. All things holy under the sun bless creation. It's November 11th, 2020, Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day has always been a big deal in my family. My whole life, my grandpa fought in World War II. When I was young, the ceremony started off outside, but as I got older and veterans got older, it moved indoors. I remember when we were young and we would be outside in all kinds of weather, and I would think about how my grandpa had experienced so much worse. After the ceremony, we would all go for Chinese food. I have great admiration for the waitresses that the that our family had. It was a family-owned restaurant and they always expected us to come in Remembrance Day and they always managed the 20 or 30 of us that showed up really well. We were a little difficult. Then we would head over to the Legion where Grandpa would be and all the other families of soldiers with whom we were so familiar with. Today I'll watch the ceremony online from Red Deer. It's really interesting to me to be thankful for the way that uh, the vid has changed the way that we think about technology and and use technology and and I'm looking forward to joining my family for that later. However, you observe Remembrance Day. Um, I know we we all feel different kinds of, of ways about war and violence in the world, and I personally struggle with the vibrations of of war and violence, and I know lots of my friends do. Regardless of your views, we do need to keep peacekeeping in mind and and know that this is a unnecessary and and maybe sometimes political, um, but often just necessary. And and uh, regardless, the people who are in the place of bravery and courage and in good intentions and and say, I'm going to do the best I can for my country and my fellow citizens. These people amaze me and I thank them. On to the story. Jimmy called out, Howder, call, let's go right now. Where? Indos, Anna's there, gunshots. Not quite ready for the street and always cautious, especially when gunfire was involved, the two geared up at top speed and headed out a few minutes after Leslie and Barnes. Detective Jimmy Sanderson and Linda Howder had been partners for less than a year. Linda's former partner had been transferred to desk work after a nasty shooting incident that left him with limited use of his left arm. Linda killed the shooter. She was ordered to attend a critical incident stress debriefing as well as ongoing counseling. This only served to piss her off. Linda was a career officer with 21 years under her belt. She was young when she joined the force and had worked hard to earn her rank. Being a woman on the force still wasn't easy, and being a woman leader on the force was even more difficult. Tall, fit, and muscular, Linda could give any male a run for their money and would beat most by a country mile. In the beginning of her career, she was underestimated. However, she soon put a stop to that. At 43, she was one of the best staff sergeants on the force. This didn't go to her head, though, 
and she was very aware that even the best can still make mistakes. Linda fostered positive relationships with her colleagues and encouraged discussion about cases. A rare phenomenon, Linda was the kind of person who accepted the perceptions and ideas of her colleagues and used the information to challenge her own ideas and perceptions. Naturally gruff, Linda had to work at seeming approachable. Though she might seem unyielding, she really wasn't. The end result was a cohesive unit with an incredible solve rate. Jimmy was a dark-haired dynamo. On closer inspection, a dark-haired dynamo speckled with gray. Jimmy's sense of humor reached the depths of his flashing green eyes. He had less years under his belt than Linda. He balanced Linda's bluntness with a practiced thoughtfulness about human nature. Jimmy's commitment to further his understanding of people balanced with his analytical investigation style made him a force to be reckoned with. Occasionally, Jimmy could be cutting to the people who were closest to him. As Linda and Jimmy entered the squad car, Linda asked, What's going on at Indos? Pulling out, Jimmy flipped on the lights and the siren. Not too sure. Party gone bad, maybe? Anna's child protection unit got a call that the kids were in the house. I thought Indo's kids were with their grandparents, so I'm not too sure what kids would be there. Anna was calling because she wasn't going to go in by herself. She heard gunfire as, as we were talking. Your guess is as good as mine. Frickin' Indo. It's one thing after another over there. I hope the kids aren't there. He's been out for about three months. That's actually a pretty big stretch of time for him to spend under the radar. I guess it's about time that we heard from him. As they headed towards Centennial Street, the lights of Leslie and Barnes' car could be seen, flashing red and blue strobes across the downtrodden houses. Other squad cars pulled up for backup. Jimmy and Linda scanned for people, seeing only officers congregated near their cars, and Anna slouched down in her car. No partygoers were visible. I had been waiting less than patiently for Leslie and Barnes, curious if time was just going slowly or if they were really taking too long. Around me, people were still scattering, and I recognized two or three faces. The rest were strangers in the crowd, or else blew past me so fast that I didn't recognize them. With great relief, I saw the flashing lights of a squad car coming up behind me. The car pulled up to the house, parking at a slant in the wide road, Leslie and Barnes flew from their car as other squad cars joined them. I saw Jimmy and Linda pull in and took Jimmy's raised hand as message enough for me to stay put. The officers divided into groups and covered the house back to front, announcing themselves loudly and kicking in the front and back doors at the same time. The officers stormed into the house. The house was silent and appeared to be empty. It seemed that everyone had fled from the inside and didn't stay around outside for very long either. The officers checked every inch of the main floor and found no signs of life. Moving to the upstairs, bloodstains dotted the walls and the rug. Here and there, a handprint balanced the culprit, perhaps keeping him up on the steps, but surely causing him to fall in the court. Two rooms were clear. The third contained a horrendous sight. Still checking for anyone living, the one officer pushed open the slatted door on the tiny bedroom closet, meeting the resistance of blankets. He thought, there's not much room in here for anyone. I stood outside and wondered what could have happened to cause so many drunken revelers to scatter so quickly. My heart was racing. I knew that I would, could, could probably go, 
The children obviously weren't here, or the officers would have found them, but I felt pulled by a macabre curiosity that I hadn't known I had. I heard Jimmy yell, all clear, and I went closer to the house. No one stopped me, so I kept on going. I peered into the kitchen, assaulted by the smell of fresh smoke, liquor, and the stench of unwashed bodies. Tobacco wasn't all I could smell, and from the evidence on the table and the stovetop, the smokable drugs were flowing fast and free. Beer and whiskey bottles littered the floor, the counter, the tabletop, even the top of the fridge. They'd bolted fast. I stood at the bottom of the stairs, and as I looked more closely, in the myriad of colors in the carpet, I identified the stains of fresh red blood. Just then, a whimpering sound could be heard near the top of the stairs. The whimpering quickly became the full-blown screaming cry of a child. I bolted up the stairs. Anna, Barnes yelled. Wait, don't go up there. I didn't stop, and he quickly followed behind me. Following the sound, I came to an abrupt halt at the door of a bedroom. The floor was almost completely red. The walls spattered like a child's impressionistic art. I never imagined that anyone could have that much blood in them. The screaming continued, urgently piercing my brain. I rushed through the lake of blood, vaguely hearing Jimmy tell me to stop, and fully aware of the woman on my left. Arms spread eagled on the bed, and legs dangling off, her face a hole of blood and gore, unrecognizable as human. A half-peeled egg with the yolk plucked out of the center. Another hole in her chest, a heart destroyed by the heartless. I pulled open the bloodied closet door to find two children sitting in the bottom of the closet. One was silent and trembling, the other's fierce screams resonating for both of them. I looked closely at the two children. Nothing in my education, training, experience, or life had prepared me for this. The boy, who looked about age four, was staunch in his quietness. He remained trembling and quiet, eyes downcast. The girl was the one with the voice box. She looked to be about six years old. Both children had blood on them, as, as did I now, and had obviously seen something horrendous, something human eyes of any age shouldn't have to see. The blood from the shotgun blasts had reached the closet door. These kids had literally been bathed in this woman's blood as they watched her shot from the half-open closet door. I gathered the children close to me and whispered quietly. Nonsense words mostly. Hush, hush, it'll be okay. Don't cry, things like that. The girls screaming became quieter and subsided into sobbing with incredibly large hitches in her chest. I carefully led the children away from the closet, out of the room, down the stairs, and into the living room. Looking around the living room, I saw signs of the party and the hasty exit that ended the party. Furniture was overturned. A bottle of club whiskey was lying on its side, having poured its golden contents onto the rug. Drug paraphernalia, including a crack pipe and a bong, was out on the table. I quickly ascertained that this wasn't the place to try to keep the kids calm and to talk to them. Jimmy pulled me aside on the way out the door. Watch what questions you ask them. In fact, don't ask them anything. Call your supervisor and find out what to do. We're going to need to do a soft room interview, find out what they've seen. They're also going to need to work with Linda so that we can do fingernail scrapings and testing of the blood on them, I guess. Medical exam, too. 
My irritation rose as Jimmy listed off the things that I should know how I should know to do my job. I knew all of those things, but I was perpetually the little sister that needed helping along. I fumed a bit and then realized that, the situation being what it was, I needed all the help I could get. This was going to be tricky, potentially with long-term consequences and very public explaining if I screwed anything up. If anyone screwed anything up. I settled down and focused on what I needed to do. Standing by my car, I pulled out my cell. Thank goodness we now had consistent cell phone service in Burton. These past few years, dangerous situations with little service reliability had been frustrating and, at times, terrifying. I dialed, hit send, and was quickly connected to my supervisor, Mark Wassel. Mark had already heard the story through the RCMP and was on his way to the office. Mark doesn't do too badly as a supervisor, although he can be frustrating and has high expectations of his employees. He's pretty common at crisis, and he's never afraid to jump in and get his hands dirty. He's not the kind of person who will sit and listen to you complain. He'll tell you what to do and wonder a few minutes later why you're not doing it yet. He expects his employees to be able to summarize the situation quickly, picking out the most salient points to present. I gave Mark a quick summary. Interesting situation you've, uh, you've got yourself there, he said calmly. Sometimes that calm was welcome. Sometimes it was frustrating. Right now, it was frustrating. Come on, Mark, I said. Give me some direction. I, I, I think I know what to do, but I need to be sure. Mark's reply. Got a pen ready? I fumbled in my purse for pen and paper, and at the same time, tried to keep physical contact with the children, who, of course, were still distressed. Okay, first of all, I'm sending Helen over. She'll be able to give you a hand. You have to talk to the investigating officer there, probably Linda or Jimmy. Coordinate evidence gathering from the children while trying to keep the bit of sanity they might have left. Don't interview the kids. Try not to ask them any questions about what happened yet. Pay attention and keep track of what they say to you. You'll have to give a statement later. All interviewing will be done in the soft room and taped. Do not, do not let any mental health workers anywhere near them. We can't mess this part up. We want a decision to be made that the tapes will be used in court rather than re-traumatizing the kids. We'll definitely need to try to talk to the kids' parents, and we may have to look at foster care. What are the children's names? I felt like an idiot as I realized I'd done nothing to try to find out their names. I asked them now. The boy looked straight ahead, eyes downcast, lips trembling. He said nothing. As I turned to the young girl, I realized she was about to start screaming again. The screaming reached a peak as I came back on the phone and told Mark, I have no idea what their names are, and they look, they look too young to be Indos. Does your child come home from school crying? Do you even really know what's going on in your child's life? Has your child told you about bullying and have you no idea how to approach it? Have you already gone to the school and it seems like they're not going to do anything? At no such thing as a bully, we share the tools with parents to strengthen themselves and their children so they can deal with any situation that life throws at them. Find more information about parent memberships at no such thing as a bully 
www.thepowerofpositivity.com. And now, back to the show. Under the bright sky, there was no need for police lights, but they flickered dimly anyway. Sirens blared intermittently and then shut off as the officers came upon the scene. Angled in to block the road from both directions, the red, blue, and white cop cars caught the attention of the neighborhood in a way that the party didn't. The neighbors started to gather. Two uniformed officers were stringing up yellow crime scene tape. After what seemed an interminably long time, an ambulance came screaming up. Its ear-piercing sirens seemed to cause my heart to beat irregularly. I fleetingly questioned why an ambulance was needed. No one here was going to be helped by any paramedic. Gruesome curiosity on the part of the EMT, maybe? The same reason I went into the house? Maybe it was just human nature. I looked around for somewhere to take the children, while Jimmy and the others secured and investigated the scene. My motions seeming so slow, my thoughts so fast. No neighbors were coming forward offering a safe harbor for them. This was a family that probably lived in deep seclusion of the norms. It seemed like staying at my car was going to be the best thing to do. I asked the children their names again, but this time I was met by silence from both children. Crossed my mind to wish I had reviewed the critical incident stress debriefing information from the seminar I'd gone to a couple of years ago. I hadn't had much need for the information at the time. Then I realized it didn't matter anyway. I couldn't ask these children questions. <laughs> but I need that information. The sound of the gunshot, the smell of gunpowder, and blood and shit. The sight of the faceless woman. The feel of blood on my hands, the taste of death in my mouth. I continued to wait for Helen. I knew it was her weekend off call, and I figured she wasn't going to appreciate this, but she'd never show it. I asked the children their names again. No response. So, we're 19 pages in, and there's a lot going on here. <laughs> I'm going to work at putting together some interviews about some of the issues that are contained in this book. And and so one thing that this brings up is uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and often uh, people can have complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which has even more severe symptoms. Uh, so things like flashbacks and rumination about traumatic things that you've seen or experienced. You might even be triggered by smells or sights or people or almost almost anything sometimes it can be it can be really difficult to deal with it can be uh, debilitating to deal with and um, hopefully I can bring some people on with interviews and kind of talk about how this affects people and what kinds of what kinds of things you can do to pull yourself out of it. So, um, yeah, lots of trauma already. Um, <laughs> lots of healing that will be needed. And lots of mystery. Who are these kids, I wonder? Hmm. We'll find out. We're going to end this episode with the full Cree prayer that you heard at the beginning. As I mentioned in the first episode, I 
I work with the community of Musquatchies, and I'm always really um, honored at the at the grace and at the trust that I'm extended in my work within that community. And I I reached out for people to do some commercials for No Such Thing as a Bully, uh, which sponsors this show. And uh, one of the responses came from a, a woman named Carmel Crowchild. Carmel is very much an, an advocate, um, an elder with wisdom to spare and obviously a little bit to give away to me. She's granted me the use of this Cree prayer song and I'll soon have a more full translation for you. If you choose to keep listening, spend this last minute and a half thinking about the blessings that are bestowed upon you and the things that you can be grateful for in your life. Thanks for listening, my friendly folks with an X. Peace go, peace Gani so he Yeah, we are a.